Hey, this is Sharon, and this is part two of a very special real estate investing episode with my friend Jeff Thibodeau, entrepreneur, investor, and all-around real estate ninja. And in episode one, we talked about how to buy your first real estate investment without breaking the bank. And we talked about all the issues and problems and ideas that we wish we had had looking back. And that's exactly what part two is about. What nobody tells you about investing in real estate until it's too late. And it starts right now. One thing is for certain. Just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this. Where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to. How to grow your business. How to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Trivata, and welcome to Business School. So if you've not listened to part one with Jeff, we talked about how to buy your first real estate investment, especially without breaking the bank. And Jeff, we saved all our almost, I wouldn't call them, um, you know, the stuff that no one tells you. And I really want to kind of dig into that one right now, maybe give people a little bit of context on uh, kind of compressing a decade worth of experience into, into 20 minutes here, which is what nobody tells you about investing in real estate until it's too late. And I wrote down a couple of thoughts. I know you have a few as well. I love this to be kind of a, a you know, summarizing stuff that no one's ever told you. So let's kick it off with like, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? I mean, I, actually, I made some notes and the very first thing I wrote down, and it's been the biggest thing for us as an investment team too, is I think one of the challenges with, with smart people is, you know, we get into this investment space and we find a deal and then we engineer it to work, right? Then we find a deal and engineer it to work. And we did that as even as a team, we got into that habit in our first cycle of deals and we had to sit down and say, hey, stop, let's define the deal we want and then find it. Right. And, and I mean, this is natural to you being back in the Wall Street days. Right. But it, it's so I see the pattern over and over again. Everyone is like, oh, here's a deal. Let me spend hours and hours and trying to make it work. And if it does, if it by the thinnest margin, I'll take it versus saying this is a perfect deal for me. Now go to work finding it. And so that would be the first big thing. If, if you can get that cycle out of the way and just really get clear on what a good deal is for you and then be patient, you're going to do way better on your first one than trying to think you can uh, problem solve your way through your first deal. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in our world, right, we call, we call it, the, lack of a better word, we call it the buy box, right? What's your kind of buy yep. box? And saying, hey, I like this. I am able to put this down. It needs to kick off this. These are the three things that I like. These are the three non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. If you have that, the non-negotiables are really powerful. But if you can tell one of your advisors that, an agent that, a mortgage broker that, they're like, oh, I know what Jeff's looking for. So there, I actually think you multiply your chances of finding what you want if you actually know what you want. Well, more than multiply, you, you go from zero chance to infinity, right? Like, it's yeah. like, if you, especially if you go to your advisor and say, hey, I just, just find me a property. You know what they're going to do? They're going to find you a property, yeah. but it's not going to reach any of your goals, right? So the clearer you are on what this, this investment has to do for you, the easier your advisors are going to have to find that thing and present it to you so you can buy it. And the same, the, the more likely it is, it's going to be a slam dunk because it already fit all your criteria versus it fit your own, you know, confidence or ego that I, I can make anything work. I'm, I'm good with spreadsheets. I can, I can like elbow grease this and that feels good too, but it's not good in terms of numbers. Right. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, 
All right, I, I get. I have a question for you. On on uh, people always asking me this. What do you have any uh, kind of guidance around interest rates? Because people always say to me, "Hey, this kind of works now, but what if rates change? What if this changes? What if my product changes? What if I do a ten-one arm? What if I do that?" Um, on the mechanics of the deal, h- how does how does somebody think through that? Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to have your spreadsheet or your equation figured out so that you can quickly change an interest rate and see how it affects your your equation, right? right. You know, it, it, you know, we'd be, you know, kind of, you know, it, it wouldn't be good to advise people that, hey, just anything works, right? You've got to know, like, there is a real risk, you know, if you're very highly leveraged and those payments are big and that rate goes up, it can change the math. But, but at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, when I even look at what we're doing as an investment team, most of our lending is not at low prime rates, right? right. And that just means we have to find deals that work better. So then, then the average, say, a homeowner who's able to get their very first investment property at like prime or whatever, they, they, they have more options available to them. So understanding what type of capital is available to you and, and not only planning to operate on razor thin margins, right? That's, that's the key. Um, because it, it can be a real thing, but ultimately, I mean, you're going to be able to exit too. So that, that's one of those things too, is really understanding, even if you're buying a long-term asset, you, you've got to have planned through what would happen and how you could exit this property at different stages in its life cycle. Um, and that's actually another one of my notes way down on the list here, but things they don't tell you is that like, you can actually, you can buy properties that win multiple ways. And that way you're hedged. If the market goes down, if the market goes up, and I'll give you a perfect example of one of these. We had a, uh, I'm going to make a video on it on some point, but we did a, a luxury flip. It was the first one for us to go up into the high-end market. And it was one of these things where we bought one in our own neighborhood. Me and, me and my business partner live in the same neighborhood. And it was like a, a passion project. We put an addition on. We made it one of the biggest homes in the neighborhood. And then poof, COVID-19, right? Yeah. Um, so it's been sitting there losing money, fully staged. You know, nobody's oh. showing it. But we always had multiple exit plans in mind. We knew that if push came to shove, we can rent it for positive cash flow. And if push really comes to shove, we can actually duplex it. It's already set up. We put a mock second kitchen in, in the renovation that hmm. could be easily swapped out. So we're executing one of those plans. It's not plan A, it's plan B to rent it out. We got an 18 month lease and appreciation should take care of the problem over 18 months and then we'll be out. But a lot of people, again, we're going down to find that one perfect deal or that, that deal today that only has one perfect exit strategy. And then you're screwed if that thing doesn't play out because none of us have a crystal ball in the real estate market. What's going to happen tomorrow or three months or six months? Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know if this is in your notes, but investors, uh, things that can to watch out for things to do sensitively, things that can uh, kind of the overpromise, underdeliver stuff. How do you any, any tough things about investors that you kind of uh, learnings that you've come across that we should throw out to folks? Oh, um, um, when you say investors, you mean like capital partners? Or? Yeah, capital partners. Oh, yeah. So I think it's really important to get clear on what role the capital partner plays. Um, you know, there's kind of there, there's this way of, you know, lending you just direct money at a fair rate. Um, they're probably going to want security. You might have to put your personal house up or, or some other asset in your portfolio up, um, depending on how arm's length they are. Um, and that's one type of relationship. And then there's a different type. There's active money too, right? So I think being really clear on which is which, you, you don't want to get passive money and have an active partner. Yeah. And then you don't want to have someone sign up to be an active partner and then disappear. And now they're getting extra equity in your project and they're not doing any elbow grease. So like any good relationship, 
any JV or investment partnership needs to be fully documented on terms of yep. the money side and the effort side and the reward side. It's yeah. the key to any good partnership, right? Yeah. I, I think you just nailed it. The money side, the effort side, and the reward side. I think that's super important because um, like I always tell all our investors and capital partners, like we need a charter. Like what's the charter? What are like what are the expectations? Can we all sign off, sign off on this? Because it's super easy and people just say, well, what if Jeff and Sharon like, you know, shirk on their expectations? I go, well, that means you didn't write your document right. You know, it basically said there's accountability around that. Hey, uh, we all agree that if these don't get done, X, Y, Z happens. Like you have to write that overall. Otherwise stuff starts to break left, right and center. And it's one of these maturity notes, right, Sharon, where it's like, you know, when, when, you, when you first have a kid, it's not the funnest thing to do to write a will. Yeah. Right. But it's the responsible thing to do. Yeah. And, and when you get into a business relationship, it's the responsible thing to do to conceive that things might not go perfect. Yeah. Right. And how and how we're going to unwind them or like we were just talking about offline, what a cash call might mean yeah. if all of a sudden the partnership's short. And then you're like, hey, we each need five thousand dollars. But to you, that's easy to write a check to your partner. They don't have that sitting there. Right. And you never talked about that potential need. Right. So, yeah, I think it, it's very important. And that's, again, you know, being the one that engineers those partnerships, maybe not the thing to do on your first deal. Maybe you want to be part of one of those that's engineered right. by someone else and learn. Um, because if you're the leader and writing all those contracts, you're going to be the one that's held the task on all that too, right? So totally. Um, I'll tell you one, I'll give you one suggestion. One thing that I learned um, at Goldman Sachs was this. We'd always talk to entrepreneurs about, you know, have building, growing and selling a business. And then they were, none of them, I, I took very few of them had done any form of estate planning, wills, trusts, et cetera. And they'll say, ah, whatever, right? Because I don't think most of us have the ability to transport ourselves into the future and then backtrack what would happen. So I remember this attorney and he said to me, all right, Sharon, like uh, I'm going to put a tough situation in front of you. You passed away yesterday. What happens today? And suddenly first you get chills, right? Which is good. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, I have to literally not, I don't have to transport myself into the future on something maybe happening. I transport myself now on what happened. So you can use that in any situation saying, okay, we have Jimmy, Jimmy is a partner and Jimmy embezzled from the partnership yesterday. What happens today? Um, the COVID-19 hit yesterday. What happens today? And so if we can do that, like I, I like writing all my, con, you know, kind of, I, I don't, I don't write contracts. I just draft like these charters. And yep. then once the charter is agreed upon, then you hand it to counsel because that's way easier that way. Cause at least you agreed upon in English. And the nice part, Jeff, is I realize that whenever I write something up, I never use legal language because then all your friends, your capital partners get all mad at you because they have, they feel like it's charged language. So for me, it's like, Hey, I think that dude one and dude two, and as soon as you do that, they laugh and they're like, okay, Sharon's just trying to get some alignment out. And then it's so much easier because people think that they actually, like, I'll give people nicknames too. I'll be like, hey, Batman, Jeff, and Robin Sharon, I like name people. And so while they're going through the document, it's hilarious for them because now I can completely diffuse tough situations. No, I actually, that wasn't on my list, but I would 100% agree with that, that at the beginning of becoming a like partnership investor too, I thought it was part of my job to write contracts. And, and actually, I dialed way back from that. At one point, I had an aha day where I was like, I have to write napkins. Yeah. I have lawyers to write contracts. So my right. job is to have a conversation, distill that into bullet points. Then we all agree on the bullet points. And then one of our lawyers writes it up and all of our lawyers read it. That's how we do deals, right? <laughs> and it's like, because I don't know what the legal document says either, man. It's all full of commas and, and weird words. Um, and I always go back to the signed um, bullet points, right? right? And one thing too, I think I'll add there 
is this base level rule I always have with partnerships that it, I always bring it up verbally whenever we're getting into business together is, you know, once we agree on things, that is the path unless we all agree on something different. We can't just have like squirrely ideas all the time and be changing our business plan. That's not how good partnerships work. You can do that as a solopreneur and that's the fun of it. You can just change direction every day. But as soon as there's more than one person, we have to commit to a path. And if we're going to change that path, there has to be good reason and agreement. And I think that's key in understanding like, you know, even working with people that you're able to have those adult discussions with, that it's not an argument when things go wrong. Yeah. And I'll tell you, um, so my partner, probably like, I'll tell you my biggest takeaway in all of the just 20 years of doing this, my biggest takeaway in 20 years, which will sound really simple. My partner, uh, my business partner is an attorney. He's a few years older than me. Um, He's in the sixties and he's like a, he's like a father figure to me. He is an attorney. So he like, he'll, he'll use word like words like there to for, and I'm like, what is there to, I don't understand what that, that means. So we've, we've agreed on, we'll always write, whenever we write an email, I will put draft. Like we've agreed that it is, it does not like we all, everything's a draft, everything's a draft. And so we always will say in our language too, Hey, I'm going to draft up the first set. And why don't you take a peek on it? And that way you can go wrong with your draft. Like no one said this was final. No one said, this is what you heard. No one gets offended because as soon as, for, I've, as soon as you put draft there, you'll get somebody respond saying, Hey, I don't think that that's what it is. I thought this was a, okay, cool. Awesome. That's what I heard. I'm glad we're actually writing this you'd be shocked how many people don't write any drafts. Like it's so crazy to me, especially communication, communication to capital partners, communication to like, even when you write contracts, like I, I have our agents when they buy stuff, I'm like, show me a draft contract before you submit anything. I'm not signing anything before you submit it. Like drafts are really good. So an easy way to not to offend people is like, feel free to use draft language and people really appreciate that. And I think too, like the being humble enough to say, Hey, did I get this right? Right. It's really nice. Um, I'll, I'll tell you too, being, being a uh, residential realtor for 10 years and then becoming an investor and still being a realtor, my negotiation skills are way different now. I do so much more verbally. I come to agreement first before distilling to paper. It used to be like fill in the blanks and mail it in. Right. But, it, but you're right. I think we can do a lot more to people talking And once we hear each other out and realize our goals are in alignment and we can come to an agreement on something and then it becomes bullet points. And like I said, I call it a, a, you know, a draft letter of intent or whatever. And then I end it there. I say, I I expect my lawyer to tell me that the legal contract matches the bullet points. I don't even want to read the legal contract, right? I have an advisor. (laughs) Who you pay by the six minute increment. Like, of course. Yeah, man. I I don't want to read that. I don't need to understand it or make sure every comma is in the right place. I want to know that it's equal to what I wrote in English. You tell me that, then I'll sign it is kind of our attitude with all of our stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you got a few more on your list and I'll keep firing at you while you, while you go through that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think, um, one of the biggest ones, and this one, I know it comes up with a lot of first time investors because it's the biggest one that comes up whenever we do a live seminar is this idea that if, uh, that if I can't get my money at the best interest rate available today, I shouldn't, I shouldn't take a loan. And this is insane, right? You got to rework your thinking that if whatever interest rate you can achieve, the deal still makes sense, do the deal. Right. The deal is where you make money. Sitting on the sidelines, you make no money. So it's like, so what? If, if a private investor only is going to give you money at 12%, if the deal still makes sense at 12%, do the deal, yeah. right? And then you'll, you'll, over time, you'll upgrade your credit score and your ability to lend or, or these people will give you better terms. But, but like back to, if you do listen to part one, if you find what your 
investable capital is and what type of loan is available to you, then that becomes your box. And then right. go find something. Don't, don't sit on the sidelines thinking, I got to wait five years to, to save this up or to get a better lender because there's deals that make sense at all different mathematics. You know, you're so spot on because um, I, had a, I had a friend who was approved for a certain amount. Uh, the deal made sense, but he didn't have the capital. He had, it was like, he was short 30 grand or something like that. But to him, he'd saved a hundred grand. So essentially he was making a hundred thousand dollars a year. He'd put $10,000 aside every year for 10 years, which is, it's significant, right? Which is significant. And now this deal penciled in it in all kinds of ways, but he needed 130 down and he didn't have the 30,000. Um, he did a deal on, for the extra 30 on lending club, which is amazing on lending club at six and a half, seven percent, whatever. It was almost like a note, right? Like a, like a, a secondary note, but it totally penciled on the blended rate. It totally penciled. And he was like, I never thought that I could have, I could have done this. And just knowing that he could maybe, it, it didn't have to look like, oh, I got a down payment. I got a bank loan. I'm going to get rent starting X date. He's like, hey, I, the stack can look weird, but at the end of the day, if the math of the stack works, we all win. And what he told me was, he's like, Sharon, I don't think I needed to put aside 10 grand a month. If I had known this lending club option, I could have bought two more. And I was like, and that was like a really, and his mortgage banker who made no money on his lending club deal actually said to him, hey, for this 30 grand, I actually think you're better off going there. And that's when you know that you have a good you know, mortgage advisor. Yeah, right. If someone's going to make a decision that's not uh, immediately in their best interest, you have a good advisor. That's that's yeah. a good green flag if you see yeah. one of those. Yeah. But I agree. I, with, with our partnership and our corporation, we put zero capital in. And so we have, it's a cold numbered company. No one's lending us prime money, right? right? Literally all the investments we've done have been double digit interest rates and everything's just fine, right? It's If the deal works, the deal works. That what we were talking about earlier, if you're counting on a low rate and that rate goes up, that's a different conversation than what we're doing. Right. We're counting on a double digit interest rate on day one. So if the math is there, the math is there and don't be scared of it. So many people would, you know, it's this deal. It's the, I, I call it like the Walmartification of all yeah. of our society. Like we feel like it's our honor to get the lowest price on everything all the time. <laughs> and that's not true. There's value, there's quality, there's opportunity out there if you're not always searching for the absolute best deal all the time knock yourself up a little bit and there's all kinds of deals available. And we are recording this during uh, kind of around the COVID crisis. So for those of you who don't, uh, I'll give you uh, a little taste of what uh, we're working on with my partner. We have a little eight property portfolio and we are on an experimental program where they're taking us, where the bank's lending for us, where we were at six and a half, seven ish on the rate uh, because of, relationships and they want to try a new product, they're actually like, we're at two and a quarter, two and a half. I mean, we literally are refinancing four of the properties at a sub 3%. And sometimes suddenly you're like, wait, wait a minute, this may, this may just jack up all our, like, we didn't even know this would happen. So it penciled and worked at six and a half, seven. It works very well at two and a half, three, but that was a that was a windfall and we never thought that would happen. But as Jeff said before, if you never even put it to work first, like the, if you have listened to part one, the, the Jeff's client who's 21 years old, who's going to buy something. If you've never bought that, you'll never even have a chance to refi out. Crazy, right? And, and it's like, 
it's also that real estate's worked throughout the generations at all different interest rates. People are just addicted to this low interest rate environment and, and it causes them to build their box in such a way they can't even find a product to buy. Right. But, but so, so maybe you have to pay eight or 10. That means you have to go look and shop in other things or buy a different product to start with. Maybe you got to put a little bit more down to make the numbers work, but none of that makes it a bad deal. That means you're actually the, the weirder the math and the deal is, the rarer the deal is. So you have less competition. Everyone's looking for that instant cash flow, 10% right. down traditional lending, you know, home. That's like, you got a triplex in a residential neighborhood. Yeah. The unicorn. Okay. But if you can find stuff that other people are just completely overlooking, um, then there's deals everywhere. Like there's right. literally deals everywhere. Yeah. Um, one thing that no one told me, and I, I want to get your perspective on this. And I wrote this down was uh, real estate always just doesn't mean a house that provides rent. There's other, there's other things as well. You, there are, there's everything from mobile parks to apartment buildings, to duplexes, to triplexes, to Jeff, like we have second trust deeds. Uh, someone, someone has no income, but they still have equity in their house, but they want to remodel their kitchen and they're willing to pay you 10%. Like I take 10% on my cash for seven months while I'm waiting all day. And so, so and my mortgage broker introduced us to that. He's like, hey, like you said, a good mortgage broker has private capital that a traditional source will never qualify for. So it's okay to ask your mortgage advisor saying, hey, are there stuff, do you see other stuff where which has got private, private money loans and things like that? That may be a good fit for me. That may be another way to just learn what's out there too. And yeah, I mean, there's so many angles, right? If you get hooked up, like if you, if you have equity in your home and you're going to get a home equity credit line at like a, a low single digit percentage, and then your mortgage broker lend it out to you as a second on somebody else's house at double digits, you just sit on your can, right? <laughs> uh, and so like, there, th th I think I, getting back to that very first thing we were talking about, like, I don't want to get a call from my uh, tenant that the toilet's plugged. If that is your perspective of what being a real estate investor is, then that's, that's extremely narrow, right? It's, a, right? it's an industry. It's not a product. Right. And so there, there's everything from, be, you can be a, a construction person is an investor in, in the market, right? They're in there making money. You know, people that are, uh, you know, buying these assignment deals, you're, you could be a property manager. There's, there's literally a hundred ways. It's like on my YouTube channel, I actually literally just titled it, how to make money in real estate. It's not about being an agent or an, it's just like, this is an industry where there is a lot of dollars move in a lot of directions. Right. And, and it's, it's almost like the wild west. Like you can't just jump in and be a stockbroker, right? But you can jump in and be a real estate investor with tomorrow, right? You don't need right. any license or any things to be a, to do your, to do your own deals. So you know, I think it's something everybody should consider because it's, it's one of these great, you know, pillars of, of North American wealth. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about, um, do you have any kind of guidance around property management? Have you seen uh, things break around deferred maintenance stuff break like that where, uh, and either a real estate investor or capital partners have not paid attention to? Well, I mean, I think you got to decide on your vibe as a landlord, right? Like there is a definite vibe of being a slumlord. Um, that's not my vibe, yeah. but those people, they make a lot of money that, and it's their game. They just let stuff be in disrepair. They have the lowest quality tenants. They just turn them over, kick them out. Right. Um, and if that's, that's up your alley, that that's fine. We tend to like to keep our properties, you know, in really good repair. Yeah. Um, and we employ property management to keep, to tell us when things need repair. So it's yeah. not like we're driving around. Um, you know, I, I always grew up with a, a dad. He still actually works in, in manufacturing as a manager and preventative maintenance is far more important than, you know, uh, reactive maintenance in my right. point of view. So I think it's important to, to remember that when you buy an asset, you, you've bought it. That's your little 
thing, right? Yeah. So, so why not take care of it? Why not put a little bit of elbow grease, even if it chews into your cash flow a little bit, but you're going to feel better about your portfolio. And the secondary effect of as you try to acquire more or try to get more partners and you're able to point to your portfolio and they all look in good condition and yeah. your tenants are all long-term. Yeah. Um, another little trick, I don't know, again, rules between different states and stuff, uh, but we'll build in a premium rent and then a separate contract that's a rent discount for property maintenance for, from the tenant so that they're responsible for their own upkeep of their house. And if they let it go, that defaults back to their premium rent. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we, and then we, so we almost build in the cost of keeping our place, especially the exterior upkept. Yeah. But then we offer it to them in terms of a rent discount, but just the, the right way you write it so that it's yeah. like, they're obligated to do it. And if they don't, you can just send in a, a professional company and it's built right into the rent. But that way your tenants get a pride of ownership of the property too. Of course. And, I mean, even this building right here, Sean, this is the only one property I rent. I don't own this. This is a, a commercial space that we've had for years for our company. And we still like to have, even though I'm just a tenant here, I'm, I'll never own this. It's never going to be for sale. There's still pride of ownership because it's my business, right? I want it to right. look good and I want to be part of the bigger community. So, you know, it's, it, the choice is up to you. You can be a slumlord or you can be a high quality tenant. I choose high quality landlord yeah. um, all the time, but both work, honestly, as yeah. sad as no, it is. No, no judgment around it. It's just, but, but I think it's the, it's pre-making the choice as to, as to kind of where you sit on that. Yeah. Um, uh, I have, um, I have one more to kind of wrap us off here. And here's my last one. And I think uh, I, people struggle to ask this question, which I think you actually talked about a little briefly is the exit strategies. And is there, do you ever buy something or invest in something or look at something without considering the exit plan? And what is, what is, how does that work? Like, I really want to talk about, Hey, if I asked you a question, like, when do I sell this? Uh, Cause it's, it's, we, I talk about this with my partners all the time. Hey, as soon as we can refi and get our money out, three more years and we're out. Like we, you could have any math around it, but it also gives us a, it doesn't allow market volatility or emotional volatility to affect how we think about the world in any way. Uh, I'd love for you to talk about kind of uh, exit strategy, especially how you think about that before you buy something. I think I've had the benefit of um, all of my active investing has been with partners as an adult, right? Uh, outside of my own personal home and personal vacation home that I own myself, everything else I own, I own with, with a team. So um, it's been part and parcel. Like I said, to have good constructive conversations when we're buying things of what is the, the plan here, especially if we're bringing in money partners and things like that. You know, one piece of advice I would have is you, you want to do any long-term holds with the smallest group as possible. You probably want your family unit to be right. involved in long-term holds, right? Or define small partnership that you might have for a decade or, or more, right? Like right. a really trusted person. And then you want to do smaller potential development deals with clear exits. Maybe that's a refi at year five and one partner gets bought out or whatever. Uh-huh. But so much changes between two people that it, it's hard to have these super long-term investment partnerships because, uh, you know, things change and people have different cash requirements and want to exit differently. But when it comes to actually acquiring something, you know, obviously you've got your first strategy, but then you want to run through the what ifs again, right? What if we have to get out of this in a year? What if um, our tenant doesn't pay us for a year? What is that? You know, what if this place gets condemned? What if we can't flip it in the time possible? And so to me, the exit strategies are answering the other what ifs and providing those hedges. So the perfect place doesn't only make sense, but also has a few get out of jail free cards, uh-huh. like a potential yeah. to not only flip it, but, but refi it and get out our capital out or flip it and then rent it or potentially just assign it before we even flip it. And the more layers you add in, the more safe it feels just like, you know, building a hedge fund where you have complementary assets, but you can build that into your single asset and, and kind of 
reduce the risk instead of saying the only way I win is if the market goes good, the interest rate stays low and my flip does good. It's like, (laughs) even if the interest rate goes up and the market goes to shit and my flip isn't that great, I can't get the after repair value. I could still rent it. I could still duplex it. We could sell it to somebody else and whatever. So you you, want to build a few of these extra things. They're not necessary. They're just hedges, right? They make the, they, they reduce the risk. And, And that's a nice thing on your first few deals. But then again, as you, your portfolio builds, you'll, you'll be able to take more risk comfortably because each individual potential loss isn't going to affect you. So I think that's interesting too, coming back to like looking at the, your overall portfolio is one thing. We, we got this really sweetheart deal and I think we're describing kind of deal. So I'll talk about this one a little bit with no money. We bought way out of province. Like I've never been to this city. It's, it's a major city out on the East coast in the Maritimes of Canada, which aren't like big major Metro centers. They're just like little maritime cities uh, out on the coast. And we heard that it was a hot market and, you know, it's a growth center. And we found this multi-use property, a commercial on the bottom and residential up top, nice little corner of the downtown. The prices are crazy, Sharon, right? And if you go out there as an investor, they, they bring you to meet the mayor and they want to interview you on the news <laughs> because it's it's small town, it's right? And they like that, yeah. yeah, they like that external investments coming. But we ended up doing the deal where the, the original vendor did the majority of the mortgage and then the primary commercial tenant who's a dentist's office, he's not going anywhere. He did the secondary. So we're so in for good. zero cash. You know, it's secured against the previous owner and the current tenant. We got a property manager. I've never stepped foot on this property and it cash flows multi thousands of dollars positive cash flow a month. And the beauty of that little property is it offsets us buying stuff in our marketplace that potentially doesn't cash flow. So someone might look at one investment of mine and say, that's dumb. But I say, you know, I can eat the, the negative cash flow based on my other portfolio assets. Right. And I'm going to ride the appreciation is what's yeah. happening in my market, not yeah. the cash flow. It's my, I'm, I'm in this, you know, outer ring of a metro center that's getting sucked up to a new price level. And we're going to ride that for a couple of years. So, I, you know, again, a lot of this stuff is complex for, for a level one if you're, if you're getting into it. But none of it's available unless you come through the levels, right? right. You can't really you know, jump to this type of deal on your first one, you got to get in there and, and play around a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, for, for those who are listening, there's, there's, we recorded two amazing episodes. The first one was how to buy your first real estate investment without breaking the bank. And hopefully you appreciated this one. This was probably, uh, Jeff and I could probably do this for a couple more hours on just, you know, what nobody tells you about investing until it's too late. But Jeff, you are uh, sharing a lot of great gems uh, across all the, uh, the Facebooks and the YouTubes and the and the social platforms of the world. What is the best place for people to find you and kind of dig more into the stuff that you're sharing with the world? Yeah, I mean, if you've got my name spelled right, you just type it into Google. I, I'm the best at SEO for people named <laughs> Jeff Thibodeau. Um, so there are a few others in the world, but unfortunately, they're down on pages three and four. So um, I tend to share a lot of my personal life and, and real life on Facebook and Instagram. And then I share a lot of this investing stuff in, in video form on YouTube. So if you're into the hardcore you want the videos, find me on YouTube. I would love a subscribe and uh, that would make my day. Um, and if you're more into, you know, what the real word, world of Jeff is, I do run a brokerage, uh, you know, seven days a week here in Brantford. So, it, you know, we share a lot of that too. And, uh, and yeah, I just try to be, someone told me a long time ago that the best thing you could do is just stand in your truth. And so I just try to do that. I mean, you know, it's not sugarcoated. It's just what I'm working on. You know, tomorrow I'm going to be editing this video of a house. I couldn't even stand the smell I was in it. But it's fun, right? I'm just trying to share my path um, because, you know, awesome people like you, Sharon, have shared their path with me that have accelerated my success. So if this can be a benefit to somebody else, it's great. It makes me feel good. And I don't even expect anything in return. So 
yeah, a social media follower like is all, all you owe me. That'd be great. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, and if you ever think about this for a second, um, I'm a big fan of writing a check and hiring mentors. So if you ever feel like, hey, you want to hire Jeff as a consultant, uh, you should reach out and be like, hey, how can I, how can I get you on my uh, team? And, uh, you know, knowing, knowing the guy he is, you want him in your corner. So, um, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for being on today and dropping some great gems, man. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Sharon. It's always a pleasure. Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com. Dot com.